Welcome to Food and Wine with Chef Jamie Gwen. Celebrate food and life by learning about the culinary scene around the world. Speaking with chefs, artists and food makers, farmers, authors and tastemakers who are passionate about everything delicious. A very good weekend to you food lovers. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. Each week, I bring you stories that expand your worldview, inspire you to try something new, and prove how food does bring us together. So I hope that you'll tune in every weekend to explore everything we love about delicious dishes, the culture, the science, the history, the backstories, and the deeper meanings that come together every time people sit down to enjoy a meal. This is a place for people who love to eat, and it's my goal to make your dishes come alive with flavor. So I like to say, whether you love to cook or love to eat, we can definitely be friends. I talk food and health, wellness, wine, cocktails, trends, tech, a little fitness, all those things to fuel your hunger and satiate your appetite. I like to feed your soul, so stay tuned because there is delicious conversation in your radio throughout the hour. If you happen to have missed a show, you can find podcasts on iTunes under Food and Wine with Chef Jamie Gwen. And I do hope that my website at chefjamie.com will make you a better cook in your own kitchen. Please follow on social at Chef Jamie Gwen on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram too. And with that said, let's dig in. All right. It's a pop quiz. Get ready. What do you think my Bloody Marys, my chili, my tacos, my paella, my french fries, my sweet potatoes, my roast chicken, and my frittatas all have in common? You're right. It's smoked paprika. So let's talk pimenton for a minute, shall we? You're seeing it everywhere. It's in lots of great recipes. It's being substituted for the traditional paprika. And I have to say, for good reason. Pimenton, or Spanish smoked paprika, ranges in flavor from mild and sweet to crazy hot. And it can be used with everything from sauces to thick cuts of meat It's a bright red spice that has this deep, wonderfully smoky aroma, and it adds flavor to everything it touches. Now, here's the thing. Smoked paprika is just that. It's smoked. So if you love the smoky flavor that comes off your grill, if you love anything hickory or mesquite or otherwise, this paprika not only adds color, but it adds depth of flavor and a smoky hue that is just beautiful. Now, what is smoked paprika, you ask? Well, simple paprika is always made from peppers that are dried and then ground into a powder. But this process and the type of peppers can vary hugely. Now, smoked paprika is a Spanish cousin to the more widely used sweet Hungarian paprika, which we know so well. Smoked paprika is a specialty of Spain where ripe red chili peppers are dried slowly, according to tradition, over smoldering oak fires for upwards of two weeks to give them that smoky taste and the aroma. And then they're ground into this fine, brilliant red powder. Now, the smoking is what sets this paprika apart. Peppers for regular paprika are air-dried in the sun or often by machine. I use smoked paprika, pimenton, to lend the color and that sweet smoky flavor. And it has this 
reminiscence of raisin-like flavor that adds a fragrance to meat and seafood and sauces and dips and vegetables. Now, in Spanish cuisine, it is primarily used as a seasoning for chorizo and the spicy, smoky sauce that you love that is the bar snack called patatas bravas. Now, 16th century Spanish explorers brought paprika from the Americas and... Both Hungary and Spain eventually adopted it with enthusiasm, each creating several different styles. Today, Spain has two paprika-producing regions, La Vera and Murcia. Both have earned what is called DOP status, meaning that they adhere to the processing standards that are distinctive to the region. Think of Italian wines or French champagne. There are restrictions and rules, and they are followed. And smoked paprika specifically is available in three styles. You can find sweet, bittersweet, and hot, which, by the way, is the specialty of La Vera. Now, the sweet style, which is most commonly called for in recipes, which is my go-to, is the most common in American markets. But if you have a spicy palate, then I suggest you opt for the hot smoked paprika. And if you like a little bit of heat or heat and sweet, which I love, I'll often mix both of the paprikas, the sweet smoked paprika, and throw in a little bit of hot just for a bit of backbite. Now, you'll see it called pimenton or smoked pimenton or sweet paprika or Spanish paprika or any variation of any of those names, but you will always recognize it by its deep red color and that powerful smoky aroma. Now, unless the packaging indicates otherwise, it's not typically a hot spice. It's actually quite mild and sweet in actuality. Um, And you want to store it in a cool, dark place where you do your spices for no more than six months because its aroma and its smokiness does tend to fade. Now, how do you use it? Well, when you're using smoked paprika, a little goes a long way. And the smokiness can be a little overpowering if you use too much. So if you're experimenting with it in a new dish, start off with no more than half a teaspoon and work your way up from there. Now, the real draw is definitely the smoky quality. And even just a little bit adds this seductive, smoky flavor and beautiful aroma to just about every dish. Uh, Of course, if you love chorizo, you love smoked paprika. I love it with every kind of potato. I put it in my dry rubs for meat. Uh, It's especially delicious in egg dishes. And if you need a new sandwich spread, well, then I say you should amp up your mayo because I make a smoked paprika aioli. Now, you can make your own mayonnaise in the food processor and then add the pimenton or smoked paprika so it dissolves the powdery, smoky goodness. Um, I often will add it to the oil and then make mayonnaise from scratch. But even easier, this is a great cheat if you want to go from store-bought mayonnaise to smoked paprika aioli or mayonnaise, I dissolve that smoked paprika again into a little bit of olive oil and then I whisk that into store-bought mayonnaise. And you will thank me because it is just so good. And I'm sure that smoked paprika, if it isn't already, will become your new condiment crush because it's definitely my go-to flavor enhancer and it makes dishes come alive. 
So that is my lesson on smoked paprika. Please let me know what you use it for and we'll dish. You can email me anytime, jamie, J-A-M-I-E, at chefjamie.com. Okay, time for food news this week. Oh, this is good. Just wait. You know that old adage, uh, beer before wine, you'll feel fine. Or wine before beer, you're in the clear. Well, old folk wisdom, like grape or grain, but never the twain, exists in a multitude of languages, which I just find absolutely hysterical. But everything you learned is likely wrong. Yes, a study was just conducted to examine the influence of the combination and order of beer and wine consumption on hangover intensity. And the findings, which were published in the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition, indicate that no matter how you order your drinks, a hangover is a hangover. So in other words, learn from your mistakes, know your body, and now you're in the know the next time you're the life of the party. Don't you love it? All right, coming up, you wouldn't want to dare touch your dial, trust me, because the great Israeli soul that is Chef Michael Solomonov creating Israeli food in modern style at his restaurants here in the U.S. of Israeli roots and the hummus god, also my culinary crush, shh, don't tell, well, He's going to know, but that's all right. He is stopping by to share his Israeli soul, the new number one cookbook on Amazon. It is a coffee table magnificent piece, and we're going to dish on the best of Israeli cuisine. Also, Jan Scott is here to share her best dishes for oven to table. Yes, just one casserole dish or baking pan or pot. Uh, will go from your oven to your table with sheer delight. Wait till you hear about her recipes. And before the end of the hour, Lisa Ludwinski is here. She's made a name for herself in Detroit, in fact, for her pie shop called Sister Pie. It's a heartwarming pie shop, in fact, and she makes beautiful pie. So just wait. We're sharing pie and more this hour. You wouldn't want to touch your dial. Chef Jamie Gwen, don't go away. Welcome back, Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. Okay, this is big. Chef Michael Solomonov is the four-time lauded James Beard Award winner, Eater Chef of the Year, and my culinary crush. Don't tell my boyfriend. He's also the chef proprietor behind the Philadelphia restaurants Zahav, Federal Donuts, Abe Fisher, Dizengoff, The Rooster, and Goldie. He is a life-affirming hummus hero. And he's sharing his Israeli soul in the much-anticipated new release cookbook currently in number one standing on Amazon called Just That, Israeli Soul. And he's here to dish, and I am delighted. Uh, Pittsburgh-bred, Israeli-born, 
modern and genuine style, the great dichotomy combined. And the new book with your business partner, Stephen Cook, is breathtakingly gorgeous, a true celebration of cuisine. Michael Solomonov is in your radio. Chef, thank you, thank you, thank you for being here. Oh, my God, thank you. Thank oh. you for the kind words. Oh. Like super flattered. Oh, thank you. I Much deserved. Um, I do have a culinary crush on you. My boyfriend knows. Um, so it's okay. That, that makes it okay then. Yeah, I think it does. And um, I'm not sure whether I want to showcase this new masterpiece of a book on my coffee table or sleep with it. Uh, it really is, I, I, it's everything I want to cook every day. And I've been a longtime fan. Well, I appreciate it. I mean, we're really proud of, of this, this book. Uh, I, that, you know, Zahav is sort of like our baby, you know, but really I feel like the photography in particular in this book really makes you want to sort of eat the dishes out of the page, you know, and that, uh, and, and it was like really traveling through Israel, that's kind of how we, we had like really no format for how we were going to make the book, and we just went over to Israel and ate a ton, and then came back, and we we're like, all right, well, this should be in, this should be in, and eventually we got to a, a book. <laughs> I think what it showcases is what I've always heard and been told. So I have Jewish roots. And I've not been to Israel, shamefully. And I have the privilege of working with um, some uh, Israeli business people in the culinary community. And they're always talking about the food culture, Michael, in Israel, how um, the, is, the young Israelis um, go um, into the military and then they go travel to spread their wings and then they come back and they bring the culinary culture from all these other parts of the world back to Israel. And that's what makes this Mecca, pun intended, of of gastronomic brilliance in Israel. And it has always uh, just fascinated me. Yeah, well, I mean, it's, it, is, it is fascinating. And even insofar as to say that, like, they... So what used to happen was, because Israel is such a small country, everybody would go travel. Israelis travel a ton, Culturally, it's kind of what they do before or after the military. Um, chefs would go to Europe or go to the States or go to Asia, and they would learn how to cook food from there. And then they would try to open these, like, restaurants in Israel that represented, you know, the countries that they go, that they staged in. Um, and then I, I think about, like, I think 10 years ago or so. I can't, I don't know exactly when, but they started to really look at the things that they had there, the things that they ate, you know. I mean, most people are, you know, second or third generation away from being from somewhere else, right? So you've got, um, you know, like all the Balkans, North Africa, Yemen, uh, Europe. Like, so everybody's kind of from somewhere. Um, and there's also been, you know, there's like tremendously delicious Palestinian cuisine, Druze cuisine, Bedouin cuisine that sort of varies depending on where you are in the country. And they would start to recognize that you have, they don't need to cook French food. Like, what's the point? You know, when you've got Moroccan salads and you've got, um, you know, Polish chillins and you've got, like, goose fat and foie gras and um, Moroccan carrots and... All uh, the good stuff. pastries from Turkey. Like, why, why, go, why go showcase food uh, from, like, Asia or Europe when you've got everything kind of right there. And I think that 
Israelis started to recognize that there is Israeli cuisine, that such a thing exists, and, and what's the point of um, trying to reproduce something else less genuine? I think that's what's so incredible about Israeli soul, is that I felt the deeply rooted uh, culinary epiphany of Israel in the book. We could spend a whole hour on hummus. I'd like to spend a few days on hummus with you personally, but with limited time, your five-minute hummus seems fitting. When we associate Israeli cuisine and the influences there, I think all of us think hummus. And to watch you make hummus in a video um, is is an extraordinary thing to me. This five-minute version, pretty fantastic. Is ice water the best secret you can share? Yeah, I think that ice water ice water works well with tahina. And it's really, I found that the best hummus starts with like a very, very good quality tahina, but also a very stable sort of whipped or like uh, prepared tahina. And as far as garbanzo beans are concerned, do you have a favorite, a preference a I method? don't think I do. I mean, my favorite dry ones are Bulgarian ones. Mm. Those are really good. Yes. Um, but I think that, you know, like a, a good canned organic chickpea is like totally fine, totally acceptable. It makes very good homework. See, I appreciate that you'll go from that store-bought place to that homemade genius. Can you share the mystique of... Is it pronounced amba? Amba, yeah. Oh, this pickled mango sauce? It's like a mango pickle. Oh. It's uh, like from mango with fenugreek. Yes. And it, uh, you know, it, it was brought to Israel by the Iraqi Jews uh, in the 50s. And it was, um, you know, similar. There was a huge, obviously, trade between the Indian and, and, uh, and uh, the, the Iraqi Jews traded a bunch in India. So I think that's probably where they picked it up. And it's like the best sort of condiment. It's kind of like sweet sour, but like very from the fenugreek. It's kind of like maple syrup, but also very curry-y, mm. if you will. I want to put it on everything. I saw the jar of it. I wanted to lick the page in the book. Right. <laughs> right. It's delicious. It's so good, right? So, so good. Um, I, I learned a couple of things about you in doing some research uh, prior to this conversation. I love that you have a very elevated view of condiments or the definition of said word. Um, Amba is a condiment, but mayonnaise freaks you out, does it not? Yes. Yes, it does. does. And um, I had no idea that you fancied origami. Are you folding as we speak? I should be, right? Right? It keeps you calm. I I know that getting to know you, uh, getting to know Michael Solomonov brings new insight. Um, You write about schnitzel in Israeli soul as a national dish. I love a good chicken schnitzel. Is your secret the matzah meal breading? Uh, I think that the secret to schnitzel, actually, our secret is to not flour it. We just egg wash it. And then roll it in like crumbs, and it's pretty awesome. Soulful, simple, delicious dishes that you want to eat right now are found in this new and extraordinary cookbook release from Michael Solomonov and Stephen Cook entitled Israeli Soul. It is a rich narrative, this gorgeous oversized format that evokes the spirit of Israel and the immense culinary landscape. It is my number one cookbook pick for 2018. You must have this book. Learn more at zahavrestaurant.com. Find the book available now worldwide on Amazon. And again, I can't thank you for... Uh, taking the time and sharing your passion enough. Thank you, Chef. Thank you. Talk so to you to soon, you. Michael. Thank you. A pleasure to talk with you. As the delicious conversation continues, definitely feeding your soul in your radio. Chef Jamie Gwen will be right back. 
show your great taste and stay tuned because there's fabulous food in your radio. Welcome back. Chef Jamie Gwen here. Sometimes it feels impossible to get a home-cooked meal on the table. I get it. Fortunately, there is a satisfying solution to help make stress-free, mess-free, and tasty meals a reality, and it's called one-pot cooking. Using one of six cooking vessels, whether it's your skillet or a sheet pan, a Dutch oven, a baking pan, a roasting pan, even a casserole dish, Jan Scott makes it effortless. She is a Canadian-based food writer, editor, and Taste Canada nominee. And Jan turns one-pot recipes into memorable meals that will fill your home with flavor. Her new book, entitled Oven to Table, is immensely creative, and it has this wonderful, cozy feel to it. And she is here to dish. I'm very glad to have you, Jan. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, of course. Congratulations. The The book is wonderful. I loved reading through it because I found it very inspirational. Like, oh, I want to make that for dinner tonight. Oh, <laughs> so, thanks. I'm so happy to hear that. Yes. Kudos to you. Um, you say that one pot at breakfast, lunch, and dinner saves your sanity, right? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. It does. I, I have a brood of boys that I need to feed each day, a husband and three sons at my table. Hmm. And it not only saves my sanity, but also my time. And you really do use your six standards. I mean, literally virtually in and out of every meal. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I kind of wanted to focus on what I call like classic kitchenware, Mm -hmm. which is sort of like the Dutch oven, the skillet, the sheet pan, a roasting pan, a casserole dish, and then everyday baking pans. I also thought that they're really the kind of thing that pretty much everyone has, whether you're, you know, a novice cook or you've been you know, running a home for 20, 30 years, I feel like these vessels are sort of something that are, you know, easily found in everyone's kitchen. Yes, I agree. So we don't have to run out and buy anything special, but we, no, we can put together a a one pot meal. At the start of the book, you share some really, I, I thought, insightful tips. Give us a few of your best tips from your 20 tenets for successful one pot cooking, would you please? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. I mean, when it, when it, comes down to it, I think of one-pot cooking is really nothing more than taking your preferred vessel, your chosen ingredients, and applying heat. And magically, it all comes together. Mm-hmm. But of course, there's some tips and tricks that you can, you know, practice along the way that makes each meal a little bit better, come together a little bit faster. So one of my favorites is I like to use a potato masher to crumble my ground meat. I think oftentimes when you see a recipe, it'll call for like a wooden spoon and it'll say, break up your ground meat with a wooden spoon. But it can be a little bit hard to sort of turn that meat into small uniform pieces with a spoon. So I like to use a potato masher and just sort of get in there and, you know, press them down with with the base of the masher. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the meat kind of crumbles nicely. I do Um, that, too. Oh, that's so good. Yes. And and it really is. It can be very laborious to do it with the back of a spoon. I think time consuming. So yes, I'm all about the potato masher. Use use every gadget you have to make life easier. I also really like the idea of like making gadgets multi-use. So really a potato masher is often not used for anything other than potatoes. And so I thought that this is a great way to also, you know, make it more useful in my kitchen. Um, Another thing that I like to remind my readers is when you're bringing a pot of water to a boil, cover it. 
um, it'll come to a boil faster. Um, it seems like a simple enough idea, but a lot of times people forget to do this. And then they spend a lot longer waiting for their water to come to the boil. So that's one of my tips. Um, leave your lid slightly ajar to prevent foamy spillovers when you do cover your food and you're cooking it. Um, uh, another tip I have is if you have a skillet and you don't have a lid that fits the skillet, you can always use a sheet pan to double as a lid. So I like to cover my skillets. I just, you know, grab a sheet pan off the counter, cover my skillet with that, and I don't have to worry about if I don't have an oversized lid with me. Very smart. Um, Very smart. Another thing I like to do is if I'm making a sheet pan meal, I like to make it in the morning when I'm already in the kitchen making breakfast, school lunches. I'll assemble it, cover it with plastic wrap, pop it in the fridge, and then when I get home at the end of the day, I just let everything come to room temperature while the oven preheats. And then I can slide my dinner into the oven and it's pretty effortless, really. Yeah, that's a great make ahead. And you talk about how using the heartier root vegetables that can actually sit out and come to yeah. room temperature is a is a plus and a benefit as well. Um, and Absolutely. I think if you can get a home-cooked meal on the table and gather your family together and it's simple and easy, if you've made it as as truly super simple as possible it makes it that much more joyous to celebrate the meal. And so I am totally on board on your one pot cooking train because I I really do think that this is the most feasible, wonderful way to gather everyone together and still enjoy the the beauty of cooking. So let's cook a day of meals, shall we? Okay. Okay, good. Sure, sounds great. Let's start at breakfast because I... I love this baked oatmeal and pear breakfast pie of yours. I too love hot cereal. So smart though, because you get the best of oatmeal without ever having to stir, right? Yeah, absolutely. So with this one, um, I mean, unless you have a large family, this is a breakfast that will serve two mornings. So already I'm like, great, I'm going to make this on Monday and I've got breakfast for today and Wednesday, you know, if that's a particularly busy morning for me. And basically you're just going to bake your oatmeal and then you're going to top it with a walnut streusel topping. It mm. seems like a little bit decadent and a lot of work, but it actually isn't. And I bake mine in a pie pan because then I cut it into pie slices and I'll top it with a dollop of yogurt which kind of makes it look like dessert it almost looks yes. like a pie with whipped cream yeah who doesn't want a wedge of a, a slice of something in the morning I'm all for right. that unless of course you're making the egg and pancetta biscuit bake because I will come for breakfast for that yeah this is my teenage son's uh, one of their top two favorite recipes in the book for sure And it was really sort of created out of their love of a breakfast sandwich. And, I mean, all you're really going to do here is whisk together what I'll call almost like a drop biscuit type of dough. You're going to press it into um, a casserole dish or baking pan. You're going to top it with pancetta, green onions, cherry tomatoes. And then you're going to depress little wells and crack eggs into it and bake it all together. Yeah, like a shakshuka that you do in red sauce where you make a well and break the egg and the egg sets in it. But you have like the flaky biscuit and the perfectly cooked egg and the burst of a cherry tomato and the bite of a green onion and lots of cheesy goodness all in one pan. This is the ultimate brunch to me. So if I wanted to serve a 
you know, a crowd of friends on a weekend, that's what I would make. I agree. I um, I ran into the one of my recipe testers last week, and she told me that she carts this recipe around with her, and she always volunteers <laughs> to make it when she goes to people's, like, um, ski lodges or their cottages in the summer. And she's always like, I'll do breakfast duty because it's, it's easy, but it's also really crowd-pleasing. Yes, definitely so. As is the goat cheese and dill hash brown quiche that you make, that is so smart. You have fabulous ideas, Jan. You really do. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, this one is just, it's a quiche that's in regular rotation at our house. And instead of using a pie crust, I just use a hash brown base, which is really nothing more than, you know, a grated potato, a little bit of egg, salt, and pepper. And then you press it into the pan, add your eggy filling. So you're kind of getting that egg and potato breakfast combo that everyone loves right? in the form of a quiche. Your muffin pan tuna melts. Yes. That's fantastic. Oh, great. Thanks. I, I've, I've been tagged on Instagram quite a lot in the past week, and, and it seems that these are the recipe that everyone is turning to. And I honestly think that it's because it looks special and unique, but it's really made with nothing more than what you probably have in your pantry and your fridge right now. Um, I mean, we're talking, you know, bread, tuna celery, red onion, a little bit of mayo, a little bit of mustard, some lemon, top it with a bit of cheese, uh, press your bread pieces into a muffin pan, fill it with your tuna mixture, top it with cheese and bake it. Congratulations to you. The book is uh, definitely full of love, uh, we can tell, and approachable recipes and really creative flair. Um, And your recipes never compromise on flavor, uh, Proof is in the ingredients, and they only require one pot or pan. So we thank you for that, of course. Kudos to you. Thank you so much. Yes, my pleasure. Jan Scott's cookbook, Oven to Table, is available now, and you will want to add it to your collection. Uh, Check it out on Amazon, available in fine bookstores everywhere, and you can follow Jan's culinary escapades at Janice Scott. So it's J-A-N-N-I-S-E-S-C-O-T-T and the number one, Janice Scott one. The book, Oven to Table, available now. Jan, come back soon, please. Yes, I will. Thanks so much for having me. And thank you for being here. There is lots more delicious conversation in your radio. Chef Jamie Gwen, be right back. Back and we're dishing Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio and we're having pie today. Yes, Eater's national critic Bill Addison says that Sister Pie is the best pie shop in the U.S. Lisa Ludwinski honed her baking skills at Milk Bar and 4 and 20 Blackbirds in New York before opening her bakery in Detroit. 
It's a big-hearted boutique bakery that has charmed pie lovers across the nation, and she's about more than just pie. No one leaves Sister Pie in Detroit without a slice, whether they have money in their pocket or not. She's all about non-traditional flavor combinations for sweet and savory, and her legions of fans go crazy over her toasted marshmallow butterscotch pie, the sour cherry bourbon pie, oh, the strawberry pistachio crumble pie, and dozens of other creations. And she's sharing her secrets. In what is touted as one of the best baking books for 2018 by the New York Times, the cookbook is called Sister Pie, and it's the recipes and stories of Lisa and her sisters bringing pie to Detroit. And I am delighted to have you, Lisa, and glad that you're here to share your pie. Welcome. Thank you so much. <laughs> yes, Happy of to course. Be here. Thank you. Uh, and congratulations. Um, the book Thank is a, no doubt a labor of love, as is your pie shop. So tell us about your uh, your sweet little corner, would you please? Yes, for sure. So I have a bakery right on the corner of Parker and Kershaville Street in Detroit, and it's in a neighborhood called the West Village, um, which is actually on the east side of town. Mm-hmm. And we've been here in the shop for about four years, but I actually started the business um, in Thanksgiving for Thanksgiving of 2012, mm-hmm. um, out of my parents' kitchen in the suburbs where I grew up. And so it's been kind of a, a step-by-step process, uh, but we have a staff of about 15 people right now, and we're constantly making lots and lots of pie. <laughs> yes, and that's a good thing. Um, talk about, please, and, and I know with humility, because you do so in the book, the big-hearted approach. You really do believe and are committed to the gentrification of Motor City, and you're giving back with every pie. Well, I wouldn't say that I'm committed to the gentrification of the Or the, the, Motor the coming City. back? Uh, yeah, I think, in fact, um, part of the big-hearted mission is that I think we're trying to be really mindful and thoughtful about the way that we're developing our business in Detroit. Yes. Um, because we want to make sure that we're not um, excluding people, and so we operate with a triple bottom line mission, um, which means that we are invested in people, and so that's our neighbors, our staff, our um, customers, the planet, so that we're you know not um, significantly harming the environment more than we need to, because mm-hmm. um, as a food business, we generate a lot of waste, and so we're trying to really think about how we can kind of combat that. And then, of course, profit. You know, like any business, we do need money to run. And so we want to make sure that our business is sustainable financially so that we can continue to do these things that we believe in. I appreciate that you're making a positive impact uh, with pie. So uh, <laughs> let's talk your drool-worthy pies. Before we get to the recipes, though, can we talk dough, please? You're For an sure. all-butter girl. Yes. Yeah, I'm, I, and I like that. <laughs> so g- <laughs> give us your best tips um, when making pie, I, I was really intrigued to read um, that you write about uh, you versus your food processor. You make uh, your pie dough without the use of a machine every day. Correct. Yes. Yeah. So we make all the pie by hand in, in large batches, but the, the batches themselves only make um, nine discs of pie dough. So they're really not that large when you consider how much pie that we're making. But I think the first step for any home baker is to really set aside time to practice making pie because I think, and I know this from before I was a pie maker, you know, I would make pie maybe twice a year. 
And every time I would make it, it would feel like this huge undertaking because I just really never got a grasp for how to make the dough. And it wasn't until I was working at 4 and 20 Blackbirds in Brooklyn that I was making these big batches of pie dough over and over again. And that allowed me to kind of develop my own instincts and to really understand what the dough should feel like and, and how um, the temperature was. And it was through that practice that I started to gain confidence because the basics of making pie dough are really not that difficult. It's just about kind of knowing when it's right and being able to kind of follow a set of rules that really helps to make good pie dough. We are very grateful that you've shared all the secrets. Uh, from Thank you. lemon poppy buns to a chocolate buckwheat cookie uh, and sunflower spelt scones and rhubarb blondies. Oh, and chocolate coconut pie. Oh, mince pear and more. Uh, congratulations. I, I love you so that much. you are doing good work. The book is beautiful and uh, a, a testament to your talent, no doubt. And um, I hope that everyone across the country continues to support Sister Pie uh, and uh, in, indulges in the beauty that is pie. I think you've proven, no doubt, that pie does bring us together. Yeah. Yes. Yes. My pleasure. Thank you for being here. You will love this cookbook, whether you love to make pie or just indulge in it. It is bursting with personality and recipes from Sister Pie, the boutique bakery that's making Detroit more delicious every day. At Sister Pie, Lisa Ludwinski and her band of sister bakers are helping to make Detroit sweeter one slice at a time. So check it out. Sister Pie is available on Amazon and in fine bookstores everywhere. And you can follow at Sister Pie Detroit. Lisa, come back soon with more creations, please. I sure will. I'd love it. Thank you for being here once again. And so that brings us to the end of another hour of delicious conversation. I hope that you unleashed your inner chef this hour and that you enjoyed the culinary playground. I will leave you with my last bite, my last ounce or tidbit for this weekend. It's a six ingredient recipe and worth every one because this bread pudding is super simple to make and insanely delicious. And because who doesn't love chocolate milk? You should be baking with it. Yes, this is my chocolate milk croissant bread pudding because croissants make grand bread pudding. All you do is in a large mixing bowl, combine chocolate milk and a beaten egg, some vanilla, sugar, and salt. You add torn croissants and I use mini chocolate chips and you let the mixture stand for about 15 minutes so it soaks up all that custard. Then you put it into a greased pan and bake at 350. Takes about a half an hour or so and dessert is ready. I will post my chocolate milk croissant bread pudding on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Chef Jamie Gwen. And I will meet you here next weekend when there is lots more fabulous food in your radio. I thank you for listening. I'm Chef Jamie Gwen signing off, and I hope you continue to eat well. Bye.